Let me say again, good morning. It's my pleasure to greet you all in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ, our common Lord, whether you're watching at home, a longtime Black Knoll member or friend, visiting with us again, or here for the first time. It's in the name and the spirit of Jesus that we welcome you. Would you let us know that you're here by signing the Black Friendship Pad? It's at the end of your pew. If you need to give us any information about your address, phone number, contact, you need emails, leave us a little note there. This morning, we will continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. And when someone finds that in your Bible, will you shout out the page? 1014? 1014 in your pew Bibles. You're finding it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's a, Bible, it's a pop Bible quiz. And it's okay to ask your neighbor for help. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. They, Jesus and his disciples, that is, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was in the, out, the house, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, Jesus said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as some of you know, earlier this month, we rented a van, strapped the kids in the back, and set out on a long journey. Our family made a big loop from Durham to Memphis to Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, to Cincinnati, Ohio, and back again. I calculated it afterwards, and it was 28 hours in the car, almost 1,800 miles. Thank you for your prayers. The kids sat in the back watching movies and eating gummies, Jack drove us through mountains, traffic, rain, hands gripping the steering wheel at times. The kids sat in the back seat daydreaming about the treats they would receive at grandmother's house. I sat in the front seat planning for a family funeral that would take place while the kids were under grandmother's care. As you may imagine, for most of our journey, 
what was happening in the back seat was pretty different from what was happening in the front seat. You might say the same about our text today. Jesus is in the driver's seat, and he is taking his disciples to Jerusalem. He is intent on teaching them about what is to come. He would be delivered into the hands of men, killed, and three days later come to life again. The disciples are in the back seat, bickering about who gets to sit next to Jesus when he is king. You could not have a sharper contrast between what's going on in the front seat and what's going on in the back seat. Jesus is meditating on his impending death. The disciples are daydreaming about their expected glory. As we have seen again and again in the Gospel of Mark, The disciples are along for the ride, and they don't really understand where this train is going, do they? Maybe they're getting some inclination that their expectations are off. Because when Jesus asked them, hey, what were you talking about back there? They have a sense that perhaps who's the greatest isn't the most appropriate topic right now. But then again... Maybe they aren't really getting it after all. If you look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, you'll see three sections that are entitled, Jesus Predicts His Death, first time, second time, third time. And in each place, Jesus' prediction of his passion is followed immediately by the disciples' complete misunderstanding. First, Peter rebukes Jesus. Here, the disciples discuss their own greatness. And next time, James and John will just ask outright for positions of importance on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom. Despite Jesus' harsh rebuke of Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said. Still, the disciples' ambition persists. Despite Jesus' clear instruction to his followers, whoever is first must be last, the disciples' ambition persists. Despite all practical indicators of what would lie ahead, Jesus' passion prediction telling them what would happen, the presence of Jewish enemies and Roman opposition— The disciples' dreams of glory still are not dampened. Amazing, isn't it? The hunger for greatness, the desire for status and personal glory, well, it's remarkably persistent, isn't it? Even among Jesus' closest friends and associates. Has anything changed today? But I must say in defense of these first disciples, that it was normal to have a straightforward discussion of rank and status, both within the broader culture and in the religious world. In the broader culture, it was taken for granted that people would be concerned about their position on the social ladder and be very attentive to the relative rank and standing of those around them. Social relations in the Greco-Roman world depended on a shared understanding of glory, honor, and shame. 
But the same was true in the religious world. Roman mystery cults inducted people into a highly stratified membership in which just a few would move up into the ranks to perceive the great mysteries. For pious Jews, it was a theological, devotional exercise to reflect on the hierarchy of heaven and how close you would sit to God. Rank was clearly defined in both social and religious life. There was no ambiguity about who was of first rank, and there was no hesitation, even among religious people, to claim the position of first rank for oneself, as we see here. Whatever you may think or imagine about a group of grown men arguing over who is the greatest— I want you to know that the disciples are not the strange ones here. As immature as they may seem to us, the disciples are not the ones rewriting the religious and social codes. Jesus is. First with his prediction of his impending death, and now with his instructions that upend the social ladder. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. Anyone who wants the rank of the elite, rulers, aristocrats, ruling priests, should occupy the place of a servant? This made about as much sense as saying you would die and be alive three days later. The disciples didn't have the categories. It simply did not compute. And we get a sense of just how deep their confusion must have been when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler in the next chapter. Jesus comments how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom, though nothing is impossible with God. And the disciples respond, if not the rich, then who then can be saved? To them, the rich and powerful seem to be the best candidates the most likely recipients of God's kingdom. Surely their present status indicates a divine favor that will continue ever after. Riches and power must be signs of God's blessing that these people are in a favored position in God's eyes. But that's, well, way off. Jesus puts a child before his followers. And he doesn't take the child because children were regarded as cute and charming, innocent, or full of promise. Children were considered incompetent, people who were as yet incomplete. They owned no property, they commanded no respect, they were near the bottom of the social ladder. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me as he cradles the child in his arms. It is not the rich and powerful who represent God and the world, but the insignificant and the weak. I want you to imagine that you are in a dark room 
where there is no light. Someone cuts a hole into the wall, a window to the outside world. When I was younger, my cousin and I cut a peephole in the back of my closet so that we could see what was going on with the other cousins in the room next door. It was really nothing exciting. (laughs) But we would lay on our stomachs, cock our heads to the side, and squint through that slit in the wall. Everything that we could see, we saw through that little diamond-shaped hole. The cross of Jesus is our peephole into the heavenlies. It is with the cross that God cuts a window into our dark world, and his glory shines in on us. Like that little peephole in my closet, everything we see of God, we see through the cross. Like a window in a dark room, we see what is around us by its light. And on the cross, we have seen what? The firstborn of all creation become the last, the least of men. On the cross, we have seen God's only son take the place of a lowly slave And because of this, our vision of the world, our vision of one another is forever changed. Now we see the glory of God shine through in places that we, that the world could never see it before. The weak and insignificant, the despised and forsaken, now they refract the God whose power is made perfect in weakness. Because God has come to us as one who was betrayed by his closest intimates, abandoned by his friends, mocked by the crowd, lifted up to a painful death. Now those whose own lives are weak and despised and forsaken show us God. The heart of the gospel is that in Christ... We rejected God, but God welcomed us. As Christians, we want to be those who learn to welcome Christ and not reject him. By his mercy and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to readily say yes to the risen Lord. We want to make room for the fellowship of the Father and the Son in our lives One of the ways we do this, Jesus says, is by welcoming the little ones in his name. Because whoever welcomes them welcomes not only me, Jesus says, but the one who sent me. This is important. And I want us to see the connection here between spiritual formation and action, between discipleship and justice. On the one hand, loving the least of these is not an end in itself. It is not a moral duty that can be disconnected from the person of Jesus for Christians, as it is sometimes presented. But on the other hand, if we want to be those who welcome God, we must also welcome the weak. If your heart breaks 
for suffering and longs for justice, then there is an invitation for you to see more in the lowly, to see in them the depths of God's care for us, and so to seek Christ. If your heart longs to know Jesus, there is an invitation to you not to turn aside from the weak, but to welcome them in his name. In reflecting on this text with staff earlier in the week, several of us had encountered the slogan based on this text and others like it, first is third. Have any of you all heard this? And the idea is that being, being first means putting yourself third after God and others which is, was deeply formative and helpful for me, but we also sort of got a good chuckle remembering that when you let this loose among a bunch of youthful camp counselors, you can easily set off a kind of competition for who can be the most helpful or, oddly, who can be the most humble. Don't get me wrong Acts of service are a critical part of what Jesus is calling us here when he says to be a servant. But there is more. More, Jesus is calling us to more than just throwing our ambition and desire for greatness into a new competition for do-gooders. In fact, when we do that, when we begin to take pride in all we can do for ourselves and others, we distort the kind of servanthood and low status that Jesus commends to us. We can do this in two ways. First, we may become those kinds of people whose help cannot be refused. When we take pride in how we can serve ourselves and others, we might become those kinds of people whose help can't be refused. And this is antithetical to being like the God who let himself be rejected. Second, when we take pride in all we can do for others, well, we may in fact become less welcoming of the weak. We may disdain those who we think are not so helpful, even when that person is perhaps ourselves. We love servant ministry, but we hate to be served. To be a servant in the way of Jesus entails not just a zeal to help, but a willingness to be weak. This is true for us as individuals. Though children do not occupy quite the same position in our society, every one of us came into the world as a vulnerable, independent child. And if we live long enough, we will become vulnerable and dependent again. There's nothing romantic about this process, as many of you well know. And yet we must resist the temptation to see this as the end of our usefulness to God or the church, but instead an opportunity to welcome Christ in our weakness. To be a servant in the way of Jesus entails not just a zeal to help, but a willingness to be weak, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, not many of you were wise, not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the weak 
of the world to shame the wise. The glory of Christ shines through the church in our weakness, in our dependence upon God in prayer for protection, in our need to ask forgiveness and confess our ignorance. It is when we rely on our own strength that we perhaps obscure the God that we seek to honor. And finally, being a servant means to do what Jesus commands, to welcome the little ones in his name. One of the ways the first Christians put Jesus' words into practice was to care for abandoned children. Infants who were abandoned by their parents were taken in by the church, A person who was to the world avoidable, whose presence was negotiable, contingent, became for Christians this opportunity to encounter Christ. That's why Christians continue to receive children, to receive them through baptism into the life of the church, to receive them through birth, adoption, fostering, We're not just trying to swell our ranks because children guarantee our future. The hard truth that many of us know is that some of our children will reject us and the Lord we love. But we receive them nonetheless in the name of Jesus because we are a people who want to welcome God. Friends, by God's grace... Our congregation is good at welcoming many people. We are good at welcoming some children, some strangers, some weak. But let's consider together. Let's reflect on who do we fail to welcome because we think we can't help them? Who are we simply not seeing because we're distracted by our own greatness. We're not that different from the disciples, are we? The Lord knows what's going on in the back seat. He knows about our bickering, our confusion, our inability to understand. But that won't get him off track So let's not be silent. Let's not be afraid to pray, Jesus, take the wheel. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled that in our weakness you have welcomed us. When we were petulant, rebellious, foolish children, You invited us into your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would transform us by your gospel. That you would give us eyes to see together in this moment ways that we might welcome you more fully into our life together. And that you would give us eyes to celebrate you in our midst. We make this bold request In the name of Christ, our gracious Lord. Amen.
when we come to this table each week, the Lord accommodates us in our weakness. He knows that we do not have the spirit, the power to sustain ourselves in this Christian life. He knows that we want to see for ourselves, to touch and taste so that we might believe. And so he comes to us here, a broken body, blood poured out. This is the God we have met in Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and he said to his disciples, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. It's poured out in my blood. It's for you and for many. All of you drink it. And whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power, God of might, heaven and earth are yours, and yet you've given us your very body and blood. We are humbled, awed, and yet in desperate need. So we ask you now in your mercy, Lord, that you would take these common elements and make them to be for us your body and blood. We pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Servers, please come forward. And let me remind the rest of you all that you may remain seated until an usher releases you. Come forward with your mask on, receive a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, slip it under your mask, and return to your seat. If you would prefer, you may partake by receiving a celebration cup that the ushers have. And let's remember to pray for one another as we come forward. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come.
through all the length of days, Lord, your goodness never fails. We thank you, Lord, for once again feeding us on this, your body and blood. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your life would be at work within us, each one and us together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.